Dan Rather is the best at digging up unbelievable stories. But if you're looking for some surprises, check out Music's Greatest Mysteries, the podcast. Welcome to Dan Rather's The Big Interview, the thought-provoking podcast with in-depth interviews with music and cultural icons only Dan Rather can deliver. Each episode will bring you exclusive in-depth interviews from classic rock to country and alternative. We cover it all right here on Dan Rather's The Big Interview. So sit back and enjoy these magnificent stories from the artists that lived it. Here's your host, Dan Rather. Tonight on The Big Interview, writer, director, Academy Award winner, Oliver Stone, opens up. What is a business like this, the Hollywood business, like for a voice such as yours? You know, there's landmines everywhere. It's a very tough, rough business. He's celebrated and controversial, challenging history at every turn. I go with what I learn, what I see. I don't believe anybody, and I could not come out believing for one second that Oswald uh, did it alone. One-on-one with a Hollywood legend. Do you see yourself as a historian who is making films, a filmmaker who's writing history, or someone who does entertainment? None of those three. I would say I'm a dramatist. Dramatists poach history. Oliver Stone, tonight on The Big Interview. He has documented some of America's most painful moments. But for Oliver Stone, his retelling of events usually strays from conventional history. Right from the opening credits, one of the most recognizable names in Hollywood, the legendary director and writer, is best known for films that challenge consensus views of history and are heavy with his own opinions of how historical events should be viewed. Day by day, I struggle to maintain not only my strength, but my sanity. And he doesn't shy away from injecting his own personal experience into his film. We did not fight the enemy. We fought ourselves. Platoon was semi-autobiographical, inspired by Stone's service on the front lines of the Vietnam War. So what really happened that day? Let's just for a moment speculate, shall we? We have the But it was the political thriller, JFK, that changed the course of Stone's career. The film portrays what Stone believes was a vast conspiracy behind the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. And Stone's belief that Lee Harvey Oswald was not the only shooter and may not have been a shooter at all. They don't shoot him coming up Houston, which is the easiest shot for a single shooter in the book depository. Hey, wait. It was a film that marked Stone as a contentious filmmaker whose movies pushed the limits. I've covered many of the events Stone has later written about. JFK, Vietnam, and President Nixon, for example. And we've had our differences, differences of opinion, but Take nothing away from Oliver Stone. He is the man behind many of Hollywood's truly legendary, most talked about movies. 
you've established yourself as I say, one of the best known, most distinguished writers, directors of your generation. Thank you. But tell me, well, that's not something I give you. That's something you earned. I'm tr looking for a word. How would you describe yourself? Idiosyncratic? Idiosyncratic? Uh, autodidactic. Probably self-taught to some degree. Mm -hmm. uh, I never studied uh, that much. I never was an English major or a history major. I, or a philosophy major. I, I did go work my way through experience and trying to learn as I went. I wasn't the brightest in the class. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, at first I was trying to just happy to get in the business, happy to have some success, happy to have some money, right. and uh, basically start a life. Uh, because I come from, you know, the bottom. When, in the 70s, in some ways, uh, I was down and out, you know, down and out in New York. So for me, it was a big break to get out of it. But Oliver Stone did not grow up down and out. He spent his childhood in New York City. His father was a stockbroker. His family sent him to a prestigious private school in Manhattan and later to a Tony boarding school in Pennsylvania. You mentioned earlier that you'd gone to boarding school and then to college. But your father returned from World War II and began a career, or perhaps resumed a career, in finance. Right. And he became, shall we say, wealthy by anybody's standards? By normal standards, yes. Uh, he became, uh, he was a stockbroker before the war. He resumed his career. Strongly anti-Roosevelt, strongly anti-New Deal, very much uh, pro-Eisenhower. Uh, pro Republican, would you say? Very Republican. And, I would, and that's where I was. Uh, and I was very conservative. But I want to talk about uh, your biography. But you were mentioning your mother. You said your mother was French. My mother was a French girl who, my father was a soldier in World War II, occupied uh, Paris and 44, met her in late 44, and they uh, ended up more or less hooking up. My mother had a fiancé, but my father was a lieutenant colonel, so he used his rank, I think, right. his clout to kind of push through. He was a, you know, the, the Americans were, were very popular in that period, liberating you Paris. You were mentioning you learned to speak French before you learned to speak English. Yes, yes, and I spent a lot of time in France in the summers because there was no school back then, so I would go out. Actually, my, my grandfather had served in World War I in the French infantry, so I got to know the French countryside around all those war, Chateau Thierry, Argonne Forest. That's where we used to play. We have bike rides, but we'd find grenades, barbed wire, old German helmets and uniforms. It was quite... You know, World War I is littered with, with monuments to the dead. I mean, they Absolutely. lost close to two million people. But the son of a U.S. Army officer, the grandson of a soldier. French infantry soldier. Is this one of the reasons you wanted to go to Vietnam? Yes, partly. Partly. I grew Growing up, up in that environment, hearing those yeah, stories. Yeah. You know, growing up in America, I have to say, for me, was a very scary experience because in, in some ways... Uh, we were the center of the world, we were the richest country, but at the same time we were constantly reminded by my father and other people of the, the Russian and communist Chinese threat, their mutual alliance to dominate the world. And uh, I was very much aware of that because my father was political. So uh, I remember the, the air raid drills, I remember the, the fear of nuclear warfare. I remember vividly the, uh, the Berlin crisis, the uh, Cuba crisis, in, uh, all this marked me, and by the time I got out of boarding school and went to college, 
I felt an obligation to, to, to take part. And when the Vietnam War was touted as, a, as an important war, Time Magazine, uh, New York Times, I mean, all the media sold us on this idea that we were going to lose Asia, the domino theory. If well, television was a part of that as well, television news. Oliver Stone went to Vietnam first as a school teacher in Saigon. It was June 1965. Well, I want to talk about Vietnam in some depth. How did you get there? I volunteered for that, too. I was a, I'd been at Yale University my freshman year. I dropped out. I was in the class with George Bush. John Kerry was the, was the big honcho on campus. He was <laughs> two years older. And I wanted to get out of the whole thing. I didn't fit into Yale. I wasn't. I felt there was a privileged kind of an aura about it. There was an elitism, the Bush crowd. Not many it, people from Yale went to the Vietnam War. No, it didn't, I didn't belong in, in at Yale at that point. I didn't know what I wanted. I, didn't, I knew what I didn't want. And I just didn't fit in, you know. Uh, and I left, and I decided I wanted to see the world like Joseph Conrad, like Hemingway, like Jack London, one of these <laughs> characters I'd read about. And I wanted to see right. what was going on. So going to Asia seemed the right thing to do. And they had a job open, if I could get there. And my father helped me get there. And I applied, and they liked me. And they were a Catholic organization. And I found out years later, Dan, right. that the CIA was funding them because they were a Taiwanese-based Catholic organization, very anti-communist. But you didn't know that at the time. No, I had no idea, so it's very funny <laughs> that in a way I ended up participating in the propaganda effort because the war was sold to us, the American people, as a strongly anti-communist uh, effort, that this South Vietnamese government existed legitimately and that, that we had, it was a civil war and that we were fighting on the right side against the North. But I don't ever, for, I don't for one second now believe it was a civil war. I think we believed that at the time. After leaving his job as a teacher in South Vietnam, Stone returned to the United States and tried to relaunch his education at Yale. But it didn't last long, and soon he dropped out again, enlisted in the Army, and requested combat duty in Vietnam. He got it. That part of our story is next. You're listening to Dan Rather's The Big Interview. We'll be back with Oliver Stone. Welcome back to Dan Rather's The Big Interview. Today's guest is Oliver Stone. Only days after arriving in the green jungle hell of Vietnam, Oliver Stone said he realized volunteering for combat duty was a terrible mistake. He was sent to the Cambodian border where he fought with the 25th Infantry Division. He was wounded twice and received the Bronze Star for heroism. He was discharged in 1968 and came back to an unfamiliar world in New York. I came back, I was dislocated and I was alienated. I was wandering around. Uh, I have to say I was, uh, it was rough. I mean, it was, I didn't know, I, you didn't hear the word PTSD or whatever, that became popular afterward, but you know, it was Post-traumatic stress disorder. You know, I was in Manhattan, which is, you know, filled with people. The idea, the generation thing, all these people that I'd been to school with, they, they didn't care about Vietnam. They were out making their careers. They were, the 60s, was late 60s were very prosperous. There was a lot of money in, 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 in supply and people were making money. They were getting ahead and 
making careers. What did you drink? Did you go into drugs? Yeah, sure, drinking, drugging. Uh, I had a rough time, but so did a lot of other people. My, I think my my first wife was a lovely woman, and she helped all. You know, I, when I met her, I, she helped center me, and over time, I integrated back into the society where I. You know, civilized behavior is a very strange thing if you've been in the jungle for 15 months. And, uh, so I, I enrolled at summer school at NY, New York University, continuing education. I ended up working my way back to film school. And uh, where, that's where I, uh, you know, I did two years of film school, made short films, one minute, to black and white films. Right. They were terrible. And I worked my way up to an 11-minute film that was well, well received. And uh, I did two other longer uh, short films, and uh, I graduated to be a cab driver and to be a uh, messenger boy, and ultimately I worked my way up into a sports film company, and I was, I was doing odd jobs. My wife was working. We were struggling. I was writing screenplays every chance I could get. Uh, I'd turn out one or two screenplays a year, but I wasn't getting anywhere until about 1977, 76. When I wrote Platoon in 76, about five years in the dark there. And how long did it take you to get Platoon produced? Ten years. Ten years. Well, I want to talk to you about that. Talk to me, Oliver Stone, one of the most decorated and distinguished filmmakers of your generation. Tell us how Hollywood works. How does it really work as opposed to how we may think it works? I could have driven you around in my cab. You know, I could have told you that story. That I, I probably, probably drove you around a few times, you know, because I was driving a lot in the city. Uh, it was a rough job, too. Um, how does Hollywood work? Uh, I can only tell you my experience. I, went, I came in from the no, no, no relatives, uh, no connections, really. Writing, treatments... I got noticed, an agent uh, liked my writing. I'd written something about the Pratty Hearst kidnapping. And then I think somewhere in there I wrote, I kept writing, I wrote Platoon, and the Platoon got noticed right away. I have to say, it was a screenplay that grabbed people's attention. It was read by everybody, but nobody wanted to make it because it was too depressing. It was too, they said, too much of a downer. Well, it came at that period where the country was trying to forget about Vietnam. Yeah, well, right. yes and no. I mean, 76, 77, remember we were building up to make, they were building up to make Rambeau in 81, I think it was 1981. So the view of Vietnam was, was definitely askew. I mean, you had Deer Hunter, which has a different take on Vietnam. You have right. Apocalypse Now. Then you have Rambeau, which is, frankly, a very triumphant view, which is in keeping with what Ronald Reagan was saying, because mm -hmm. Reagan made a big deal of the fact in 1980 that the Vietnam syndrome, uh, we have nothing to be ashamed of about Vietnam. It was a war that was a noble, a noble effort by the U.S. So people were in America were always pulling away. There was two memories of Vietnam. One is that it was a good effort, and we were sold out by the media, people like you, uh, and uh, so forth. And uh, the memory of Vietnam was skewered. So I was upset. You know, Rambeau was coming out, and here I am trying to sell Platoon. Nobody wants to make it. It's very frustrating. Uh, I threw it in the closet and I forgot about it. Then it was resurrected in the 84, but only made in 86. Now, do you see yourself as a historian who is making films, a filmmaker who's writing history, or someone who does entertainment? <laughs> uh, I would, I, none of those three. I would say I'm a dramatist. Dramatists poach history. They go into history and they write their interpretations of history. 
sometimes they, they see things intuitively that historians miss. Uh, for example, the Greeks. The Greeks had great historians in the 5th century BC, and they also had great dramatists, Sophocles and Aeschylus and uh, Euripides. Uh, they were all writing about the history, but we don't know what happened. Homer was writing about the history of the Greek, the Trojan War. We don't know what happened in the Trojan War, but we have a sense of it from Homer. In fact, he's saying, hey, this, this is almost like a Greek civil war. The Greeks are fighting more amongst themselves than they are with the Trojans, and you see that that runs through the Iliad. I, I tried to do the same thing in Platoon. Now, going to a metaphor, so to speak, I, yes, there was fraggings. People, we would, soldiers would kill officers and, right. non, and, and uh, sergeants and so forth, but not in any large degree. But True. it did happen. But by framing the platoon inside this kind of murder that happens in a platoon, I offended many, many, many people because it didn't happen in their platoon. But it was a metaphor for our experience in Vietnam where we were eating ourselves. You're seeing it, rightly or wrongly, uh, as uh, a maverick, idiosyncratic, uh, certainly controversial, whether you in ever intended to be so or not. And my question is, given all that, and now your track record, as, as not just a good, but as a great producer, director, writer of film, what is a business like this, the Hollywood business, like for a voice such as yours? I don't know that there's any comparison. It's just, as I'm trying to say to you, I'm trying to say, I feel it out one step at a time. I, you know, there's landmines everywhere. It's a very tough, rough business. There's no, sometimes there's no memory, sometimes there's no forgiveness. Uh, but each, each time, I've been up and down a few times, you know, and it, I, I struggle to find the next subject. Each one was carved in a way out of stone. Uh, it was never, I was never a formula person. I could never do a film that they told me that this is the way to do it. I, 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 I guess because of the, re the rebellions that happened back in the 60s and the 70s, I always tried to stick to my own feeling and gut. And sometimes you run into problems with that. Uh, I wrote, uh, I mean, waiting 10 years to do Platoon, waiting 10 years to do Born on the Fourth of July, they taught me a lesson, which is stick to what your own guns are and do it your way. And uh, Do it your way. Does that make it more difficult, easier, or Very no difficult. effect on... Very difficult. For example, your ability to get stars, people you want to act in the film. Very difficult, too, because you, you know, that's an economic consideration as well. So sometimes people who don't want to take a risk on a Born on the Fourth of July, I mean, you, you have to, you're dependent on a star. Mm -hmm. uh, if you can get a Tom Cruise to work for very little, that gets Born on the Fourth made, or Kevin Costner in JFK. I mean, right. The, there are there are mat keys to the kingdom, and you have to figure out how to play those keys. But uh, you know, I've written many scripts that have not been made about good, strong, strong materials. So I've been for every one success, I probably had three failures in writing. It was his skill as a writer that first cast Oliver Stone's name into the limelight. He was trained by the best, including his first teacher, Martin Scorsese. Gotta make the money first. Stone went on to write critically acclaimed films like Scarface. Como se llama? Antonio Montana. And you? What you call yourself? But it was Stone's adaptation of the book Midnight Express that won him his first Academy Award. 
That was a dramatic film about a young American student who was detained in a Turkish prison for smuggling drugs. That was my uh, big breakthrough in, in, the, in the system. Uh, they knew my name as a writer, but that got an inordinate amount of attention. It was a lower-budget film. It was tremendously successful about the Turkish prison and uh, Billy Hayes' story. And you knew about the Turkish prison because? Because of Billy Hayes. I'd been in Turkey only once, briefly, but no, the prison, I knew about prison because of my own experience in prison, and also, but we don't want to go into there too much. Well, not too much. I spent but some dark days in this What country. experience in prison? Uh, I was arrested in, for federal smuggling in, in, in uh, California when I came back from uh, Vietnam. That was some homecoming. Within 10 days, I think I was in jail, facing 5 to 20 years. <laughs> it's a side story, but I, my father eventually bailed me. I mean, I got I got out. No I was one was representing say, your father's me. Father's lawyer saved you. No, no lawyer came in for the first few uh, week, week and a half. Then they they came in when he knew he was going to get paid. It wasn't the system was way overcrowded. This was during the beginnings of the drug war. You know, the concept the, the prisons were overcrowded with basically uh, Spanish and, and black uh, prisoners. It was. There was a lot of drugs on the border with the Mexico and San Diego. You know, I can tell by the look in your eye, at least I think I can, this has affected you deeply. One, you, you don't want to talk about it in detail, which I can understand. Prison's a very tough place. Yeah, Were especially you? coming back from... It was just... A, I mean, it was... It, if you thought Vietnam was bad, then when you come to an American prison, then you realize that the world is, is certainly not Yale and boarding school. It's another system. It's very cruel, and it could be very cruel to the, and unjust to the uh, lower classes. You'd been to war, but when you went into prison, were you afraid? Yeah. Oh, yeah, it was dangerous. You bet. Yeah. Bet. No, you had to defend yourself. You had to be aware of what was going on. You don't want to be stupid. You learn very fast, you know. But also, I was facing a long sentence because it was a serious charge, and, but it wasn't, I wasn't, I was carrying actually Vietnamese, uh, Vietnam uh, marijuana. Which the army had always, they always were trying to get us when we came back. But anyway, I made the mistake of taking it to Mexico and coming back. So you were facing possibly a long prison term. Yeah. But it didn't happen. Thank God. Yeah. <laughs> so you I don't think I would have had a chance to get back to film school. <laughs> 30,385. I go along at 23. You got it. Another very different world that was familiar to Stone was the trading floors of Wall Street. Made as a tribute to his father, who was a stockbroker during the Great Depression, the film cast a bright light on the dark world of Wall Street in the 1980s. Stick around, this could be fun. It was a breakthrough movie for many rising Hollywood stars, including Michael Douglas, who won the Academy Award for Best Actor. The point is, ladies and gentlemen, that greed, for lack of a better word, is good. Greed is right. Greed works. Wall Street was the first up after uh, Platoon and was my first so-called studio film where I was directing a... And it hit the, the screens of your local neighborhood movie in what year? It, it came out in December 87, I believe. Back then, I thought the 80s were excessive. I thought that whole era would go down the drain because I thought these were... It was a rotten value system. I, my father would have been... He had just died. He would have rolled over in his grave if he'd seen the way, way these brokers are behaving. Mm -hmm. He was the older character in the movie, played by uh, Hal Holbrook, right. and a combination of Charlie Sheen's father, Martin oh. Sheen, who was a labor, more the old way of doing things, which is 
Wall Street served the client. All of a sudden, around in the 80s, the client served Wall Street. I mean, the, the institutions, the banking institutions, the houses, became gigantic and were making money for themselves as opposed to thinking about the economy, productivity, the, the, the clients. Well, the whole system it was so turned upside down. Were you were or were not surprised by what had happened in 2008? Shocked. Shocked. You know, I thought it would be over in the 80s after that crash. I thought it would be kind of like this single, these people are so transparent. But there was no, uh, with Clinton and uh, Reagan and the Bush people, there was no sense of regulating this economy, trying to make it healthy again. Now let's cut the BS and get real. Why this purity that you feel about killing? Why for Christ's sake, why? Don't lie to me! One of Stone's most memorable films turned the camera back on the media. It was written by Quentin Tarantino and directed by Stone. You never did nothing. It told the story of two murderers, played by Juliette Lewis and Woody Harrelson, who go on a highly publicized killing spree across America. Free, Kevin. One of your most controversial films, which is saying something, because you make controversial films, yeah. uh, Natural Born Killers, yeah. it was criticized at the time, and for those who've seen it since, sometimes criticized uh, for, quote, excessive gore and violence. But you, you had a message about the media you know, in, in that film. Yeah. What were you trying to get across? Uh, if you remember, I, I called it a satire. It came out in 1994. It's a very interesting era, the early 90s, because that's when, in my perception, the media started to, the advertising and the, the growth of television news started to change. It, it was less concerned with giving news or trying to seek the news as, as it was in entertaining, infotainment. Right. And we had a series of murders and sensational scandals, an ice skating scandal, a woman who cut off her husband's penis, uh, made headlines. And then the O.J. Simpson case is, is really the heartbeat of that because that case, uh, I never saw so much coverage in my life. Of it, it felt to me that television was changing, that they were making so much money from advertising this repeatedly or running clips of the O.J. case. It felt like billions of dollars were being made by the networks just channeling this piece of news over and over again. Well, that's true. Billions of dollars were made. And I wanted to reflect that because the movie essentially posits two, uh, two young romantic, uh, romantics in love who are natural-born killers, they have a lousy education, they come from a white trash background, they go out and they kill 50-some people. Right. And of course, because I made the media worse than they were in the movie, played by Robert Downey, right. or, and the, the policeman that was hunting them down was, he, was a killer himself, right. and the warden, uh, played by Tommy Lee Jones in the prison, was insane. Right. Uh, you see, I was, I was mocking the, the system. And, well, and, and by letting the two lovers live at the end, <laughs> I was... I was having my cake and eating it too and saying fuck you to the whole system. So of course it's anarchic film, but that was the intention. It was a satire. You're listening to Dan Rather's The Big Interview. We'll be back with Oliver Stone. Welcome back to Dan Rather's The Big Interview. Today's guest is Oliver Stone. That Oswald was interrogated for 12 hours after the assassination with no lawyer present and nobody, nobody recorded a word of it. Oliver Stone's most controversial film was JFK. 
It's told through the eyes of the late Jim Garrison, a district attorney from New Orleans, played by Kevin Costner. The story follows Garrison's real-life investigation into the assassination of President John F. Kennedy and Garrison's theory, never proved, that there was a cover-up. A single bullet now has to account for the remaining seven wounds in Kennedy and Conley. But rather than admit to a conspiracy or investigate further, the Warren Commission chose to endorse the theory put forth by an ambitious junior counselor, Arlen Specter, one of the grossest lies ever forced on the American people. The film made headlines around the nation. Some newspaper editorials accused Stone of twisting history. Despite the controversy, the film earned eight Academy Award nominations and two wins. It became one of his most popular and profitable films. You made uh, the film JFK in what year? 1991. 91. I remember you and I did an interview with it as, as the film came out. I remember. But uh, plenty of time to reflect. None of us have the opportunity to do this. But if you could do it over, anything in the film that you would do differently? Yeah, there are a few things I would do. But I, I, th I stand by the film. I looked at it recently because I went through that 50th anniversary blitzkrieg from the media, which was unbelievable. I feel very strongly that it was a very important, the crime of the century, and I think uh, there's no way in hell that one sad-ass uh, sniper like Lee Harvey Oswald could have sat in that window and pulled those, done it in three shots, so well, to speak. Yeah. Well, you know you and I have a different view about that, but I respect yeah. your view. But you're but a huntsman, and I think you know good, good shooting, and you know that was a good, there was a lot of marksmanship that day. What, but what I do know is that you have said repeatedly, you have your opinions, based yeah. on what you believe to be the facts, but that you're open-minded. Uh, I didn't comes have any opinion on the, on the Kennedy murder and, until I went into it, because in 1989, uh -huh. after I did Born the Fourth of July, I was thrust, a book was put in front of me, The Garrison Story. Right. And then I started to read that, and I looked at all the books, and of course I'd heard the Warren Commission arguments, and I'd seen all those films that you made, among others, right. Right. back in 1967. Right. Uh, you know, Defending, I saw those films, and you know, you weigh the arguments, you use your logic, and as I said earlier, you, my own life, I'm autodidact. Right. I've been taught. I go with my what I learn, I, what I see. I don't believe anybody. Right. I, I went into that thing, and I could not come out, you know, come out believing for one second that Oswald uh, did it alone. But I think the autopsy and the uh, the shooting in Dealey Plaza, pretty solid. I think we know more from what uh, the uh, the. The actual Zapruder film really does give us a great timeline. The film was criticized, but I have to say, you knew Garrison, or probably knew other cases. Yeah. Garrison knew he had a weak trial, and we showed that in the movie. We never made him out to be no, he didn't have a the guy case. who was going to say, I can prove it. He knew it, and we have Costner say that repeatedly. In fact, he didn't allow certain people that he could have helped him to help him. He cut his own throat on a few things. Yeah, we sure. showed that in the movie. You did. Garrison was a, was a strange man. But at least he was the only guy who got this on a public record. And as a result, we know much more now because of what Garrison did. You don't have to do it. You certainly don't have to do it yet. But if you could have one film, someone says, listen, Oliver Stone, you, you've made a lot of very good films. Whatever one may think of them, they're well-made films, well-written, well-acted films. What film would you 
one movie would you have speak for yourself? Dan, I'm not going to answer that because uh, I don't I feel I that way. I feel that each one has its moment in time. I remember if you asked me what year happened, I will tell you that was my year when I was doing JFK or that was my year when I was doing Any Given Sunday. You get passionate about each one. But on the Kennedy case, I did return to it mm -hmm. for this year because I knew the 50th year was right. going to come up. Right. So I, renew, I reviewed everything I could just to get, to get ready for the Blitzkrieg. Mm -hmm. A lot of good it did me, but I, I think we're going to still make another documentary about Kennedy because we want to combat the, um, the, the inertia. What's your all-time favorite film? Setting aside your own films. I have no all-time favorite. I can't do that. I really, I'm coming from a tradition. It's like we're, we're building, uh, we build on the shoulders of other uh, directors, writers, and uh, that's, I always go back when I feel despondent. I go back to the craft of it. I go back and I look at the old films and uh, the ones that are more, even the ones that are recently made. I enjoy watching a good film because it inspires me to make another one. I will never resign this office. Never. The movie JFK was the first of Stone's presidential biopic films. Stone went on to tell the personal stories of President Nixon. It's been tough weeks in Iraq. And most recently, George W. Bush in the film W. What place do you think you have in history? In history? Oh, I don't know. Um, in history, we'll all be dead. <laughs> Since you went to school, with George Bush. Is that the reason that some people think your film about George Bush was soft on him? That you're <laughs> a common Yale man, you share that background, yeah. so you gave him a pass on some things? No, no, not at all. Uh, if any, uh, it, you know, it's, it's the same story with Richard Nixon. I did a film on him, too. I didn't agree with uh, Nixon. In fact, I despised Nixon, and I also despised Bush for what he did to the country. But when you make a movie about somebody and you dramatize their life, you're not doing a documentary. You're trying to walk in their shoes. You're trying to understand what they are thinking and going through. And that's what you do. You slide into their skin. So what was really, some people think it was soft on Bush, was really, I think, empathetic on him. He wasn't in some ways responsible for his thinking or conscious of what he was doing. He was assumed that trait. He became that person because he never expressed a third dimension of self-consciousness to me. Whereas Nixon did have that dimension. Yeah, definitely. So they're two different characters, but I, I did feel for both of them, and I liked them in the sense of while you're making the movie, you can understand why, in a sense, Bush is limited by his father. He wants to outdo his father. He wants to finish the deal. He wants to go to Baghdad and his head and, and do what his father was criticized at the time by right-wingers for not doing. You're convinced that's true? That, I think that's a very important part of George Bush's psychology, yes, mm -hmm. outdoing the dad, because, you see... You, all his life prior to that with the older brother, the younger brother Jeb Bush being the, the dominant, the, the featured player. He was a star of the family, right? Yeah. And then I can understand Bush's inferiority complex with, with Jeb as well, and his mother and his father. And I think, I, I think when he said, I have a higher father, meaning he, he meant Ronald Reagan or he meant God, we're still not quite sure what he meant, but he meant that honestly, that his father, he didn't, he liked his father, but he didn't respect him in the same way that he respected Reagan or or the good Lord. Well, I took it when he said uh, a higher father, he meant the good Lord. Okay. Well, some people would confuse that with Ronald Reagan, too, because <laughs> to some conservatives, he's a, he's, uh, he is. Because these problems, in one form or another... More with Oliver Stone when we come back, including his controversial new television series that retells American history from his point of view. So stay here with us. 
seeing the world through the eyes of our adversaries. This way lies in sharing in the needs of other countries. Have we been right to police the globe? Have we been a force for good, for understanding, for peace? We must look in the mirror. Oliver Stone's most recent piece of work deviates from his usual storytelling style. It is a sobering 10-hour television documentary that ran on Showtime. It retells Oliver Stone's version of American history since World War II. National security state and the nation's elites have benefited from that. The television series called The Untold History of the United States took Stone and history professor Peter Kuznick almost five years to complete. It was praised by some as being a fresh look at history, criticized by others for telling what they said was a one-sided view of history. In 2008, after eight years of George Bush, uh, I, I'm saying, look, I've done these films about history, JFK, I've done uh, Nixon and uh, W I'm working on. I just, what is, what is going on in our country? I mean, here we are in this, involved in another war in Iraq. We've been involved in Afghanistan, Kuwait, Granada. Uh, war seems to be a state of mind now. It's just the way we, it's a war economy, you know. And I, and I wanted to know more about our history. Is George Bush, W. Bush, is he an aberration? Or is he a continuation of a pattern? Well, talking about the untold history, uh, you questioned the whole idea of, quote, American exceptionalism, yeah. unquote. Given that, what do you think of directors like Spielberg, yeah. who have a much more patriotic approach yeah. to filmmaking in general? Have you ever talked to him about it? What do you think? Uh, I, I would love to talk to him. I don't think he would. Uh, but he has a different view of history. He said himself, uh, I was born Jewish in Arizona or something, or California, and I always wanted to fit in. I think that's a different. That, that that's a mindset. My father had that same quality. My father was Jewish, and he always wanted to fit in, because in the 1930s and 20s it was anti-Semitic. The country was he heavily uh, that way, and uh, so fitting in was also an issue for me. And I did fit in. I went to boarding schools. I went to Yale, but because things went high haywire, you understand. I had dual personality. I had a bit of a polar opposite. Part of me wants to fit in and wanted to. To, would love to get Oscars, but there's another part of me that says I'm I'm fucked. I'm on the other side of history. This one, I mean, I'm so in a disagreement with the way we, the media, and the government tells our history in America. So in disagreement with it, and much more profoundly so since my involvement for five years in this untold history of the United States. I just don't belong in this uh, in this view. I think we're so distorted and we're so away from our what we were and could have been that. It's a deep, deep uh, disaffection. Now, I love my country, and I, and I think there's great people here, people who, are really, who would tell the truth and want to seek it, but we're so buried in, in bullshit that it's so hard now. So is it fair to say caption for Oliver Stone is screw the system? Uh, yes uh, and no. Look, I mean, this is a very important question. Uh, what I learned in, in school and what I learned about American history, what I've experienced in my life, the way we perceive it, is the, the explanation of it, as I said earlier, is not completely wrong. It's partly true. What I have tried to do with untold history 
is go with my historian friends into a deeper place about our history. Because we can and have threatened humanity with a bomb, our mistakes are forgiven and our cruelties... To show you the dark side of American history. So by the time you come out of the series, you see the whole moon, you see the whole spin of this thing. And this American experience that you and I are living through, you're older than I am, but we're living through this century of time, has been amazing because I think if you look at it from another side, everything comes out differently, everything. World War II, the Russian threat, the Kennedy killing, uh, the Wall Street uh, debacle, the, uh, the, the Kuwait invasion, the Iraq invasion, the Afghanistan invasion. You can look at this. If you live another, if we lived another century, you and I would look back. We might laugh about it all and say, "Well, those Americans really had it screwed up, didn't they?" Fair to say that your view of American history is that we have it, to use a colloquial expression, right the wrong way around. Yeah, ass backwards. <laughs> ass backwards. Well, let's look. Well, you ahead. and I believed it. I believed it for forty some years. I have to tell you the truth. I voted for Reagan in 1980. I voted for him after having served in Vietnam after what he said because uh, I thought, you know, I believed in the, the, the sunny personality approach to history. It was Reagan's demeanor on television, his good-natured confidence that I was that, that even at the age of 40, I was, I was voting for him. So when I went to Central America, and I think you've been there, and I saw the death squads in action, and I saw these governments that he supported, what they were trying to do to turn back the Nicaraguan revolution. I said, no, there's something not that doesn't fit this personality. And I went deeper. And I, after 1983, let's say, I could never come back to that view of America. Let's look ahead for a bit. Uh, is there in your future uh, an Obama film? You made films about uh, Well, President the Obama Kennedy? film that I would do is not good. I don't think he's that interesting enough. I think that that's more of a Spielberg movie because, you know, the first black president of the United States, it's a good story. And I'm sure you can sell it on a symbolic level. But uh, I fault Spielberg for his exception, his view of exceptionalism. He think, you know, he grew up in that America. He has to sell that idea. Americans like that idea. I mean, every football game. I love football. I know, I know you do I too. Do as well, but every game we have, we're inundated with military flags and the worship of the military. Flyover jets. It looks like we're going to war. And I don't know about I mean, worship of the military. Certainly respect for the military. But again, we won't argue about it. But there's not an Obama biopic in your future? I, I don't think he has the backbone that interests me. I, I tried, to, I wrote recently, uh, I spent four months of my life, this last four months, writing the Martin Luther King screenplay, which uh, I really wanted to do. It's a real story. Is it's it as a, real as we, we have it. And fair to say a biopic, or is it? It's whatever you call it, it's a great story. It's a movie, it can work, but no one will make this one now. The, the estate won't make it, because it deals openly with the adultery, deals with, you know, he's not the saint, but he's a great human being. He's one of the greatest American leaders we've ever had, and I really, truly love him and admire him. But I can't tell the real story because of these restraints we have, this hypocrisy in our society. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Are you telling me that the great Oliver Stone, and I, no, <laughs> I use Oliver the word Stone. measured, no, that the great Oliver Stone wants to do a picture about Martin Luther King, and you don't think you can get that film made? I know I can't. No, I, I, I've been, uh, it's been uh, turned down by the estate, or they haven't even seen it, but the people who control the... Uh, the Martin Luther King family estate. Yeah, though they're, they're, that's certainly an issue. There's three children, mm -hmm. and I think it's a very uh, respectful picture about their father. They haven't read it, 
but I, I can tell you as of now, the people who control it, the Spiel, Spielberg is one of them, mm -hmm. and the producer, uh, you don't know his name, but he's been involved for many years. Uh, these people won't go there. They want to find a, a sanitized a Disney version of this movie. The King story is not a happy ending. It's a, it's a happy ending if you end it in Selma or in 1965 at the speech. That's what right. they did when they did the, the networks. They did their American exceptionalism and the King story. Right. They end it with the speech in Washington. Right. I go into the, his, he took on the state. He, he, went, he went against the Vietnam War early mm -hmm. and consistently and very hard. Right. He took on poverty on a, on a level that which no leader up to there had. So he made many enemies, not only in, with Lyndon Johnson and Herbert and uh, J. Edgar Hoover, but he made enemies in the civil rights community because for the first time a civil rights leader was saying, no, well, let's, we got to fix all three things. We got to fix militarism, poverty, and racism at the same time. And there's a good reason for that. Question. You're the filmmaker. Remember King when he was saying uh, those boys in Vietnam, then, you know, they're going to come back, those black boys are going to come back to, to a situation in the United States where what are they fighting for? I mean this in no self-aggrandizing way. Not only do I remember it, but I was there. Yeah. But if you find that you can't make the film you want to make, the, right. the broad sweep of Martin Luther King in history, why not do what George Clooney and company did with Edward R. Murrow? They didn't make a biopic. They made Good Night and Good Luck about one section. Yeah. Martin Luther King in the Birmingham jail yeah. or Martin Luther King at the garbage worker's strike. Yeah. No, I understand that, and I and perhaps that is the uh, you retreat to, to retreat to fight another day. Uh, there is, but after I have been involved and I got know what I know, it's so hard. You know, as I said to you earlier in this uh, program, I said to you I've had so many scripts that I really loved that did not get made, and uh, it's once you've done that, you've crossed to that script and you've done it. It's very hard to go back and put it back in a bottle. I don't think it will work for me. You're nowhere near the end. You've got a lot of good work ahead of you. Yeah. But how do you want to be remembered? Or what is it you want to be said about yourself when it's all, all done? Uh, <laughs> well, I think I've done a sustained body of work that was historically probing, uh, seeking justice, trying to be a truth teller, fighting for the underdog, these are all good qualities, and uh, and I hope a few of my people who knew me said, and they had love in his life too. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. Thank you. Appreciate you taking the time today, particularly after a long trip. I pleasure. appreciate it. Thank you. Nice to see you again. Good to see you. I hope you we again. live to do another one, huh? Well, <laughs> and that's the big interview for tonight. We're always eager to hear what you have to say, so please follow us on Facebook and Twitter, or send your comments to viewer at access.tv. And that wraps up another captivating episode of Dan Rather's The Big Interview. Now remember, if you love what you're hearing, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. And of course, leave us a review and tell a friend. Thank you for joining us for Dan Rather's The Big Interview, where music and conversation unite.